Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to Know Who Drives Return. To listen to all of our podcasts, be sure to visit podcast.boardroomalpha.com and make sure to subscribe so you don't miss any. For ongoing daily analysis, check out our channel at thestreet.com slash boardroomalpha. And don't forget to sign up for our newsletter. And now back to the episode. Hey, everyone. Uh, I'm David Drapkin, and welcome back to Know Who Drives Return, the podcast brought to you by Boardroom Alpha. Uh, today, we're talking something near and dear to my heart, at least, you know, live events, sports, and, and ticketing with uh, Jack Retzinger, who's the, the co-founder and CEO of SeatGeek. Uh, SeatGeek re- recently struck an agreement to go public via Redball Acquisition Company, uh, a SPAC sponsored by Redbird Capital and, and some of the biggest names in, in sports entertainment. Uh, so, Jack, you know, uh, really excited to have you on today. Um, congrats on on signing the deal, and um, you know, thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. And so, first off, how about you know a little bit of introduction to yourself? Who are you? Where'd you come from? You know, wh- why'd you start Seeky? Sure. Grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, and grew up as a diehard Cleveland sports fan. So, spent a lot of my uh, youth going to Browns games, Cavs games, Indians games, indoor soccer games. There was the Cleveland Crunch, which I'm not sure they exist anymore, but <laughs> I was a huge fan when I was 11. So I've been a lifelong fan of live events and it's been a big part of my life. As I, after I graduated from college and we was working on another startup, considering what I was going to do next, was so struck by how poor the actual digital experience was around live events as I learned more about it. It's this industry that on one hand brings people a ton of human happiness and it's an incredible way to spend your time. And yet the process of actually getting to an event and everything that leads up to it, buying tickets, et cetera, has been really, really painful. There's hidden fees. People feel like they're always getting ripped off. And as a result, people just do less stuff, which is a shame. Mm-hmm. So the origin of this was one of my co-founders, Russ and I were living in Boston. Boston sports were blowing up at the time. This is like circa 2009. And we were messing around with buying, selling tickets ourselves, learning about the market as we went to a bunch of stuff. And we we're just struck by how opaque everything was, how little data there was, and how we always felt we were getting ripped off and others did as well and figured there must be a better way, which mm-hmm. is what was the start of SeatGeek. Gone are the days of uh, shady ticket brokers over the phone and <laughs> meeting random locations, and uh, that, that that's fun. Your your Browns play my Raiders in a couple of weeks, so you know that, that should be a. I don't know who's going to win that game. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so so you tout SeatGeek as you say you're a technology company for, first and foremost. Can you expand a, a little bit of, of what you mean there? Yeah, we ultimately are using technology to refactor how this industry works. Some companies we compete with use technology because they have to, because it no longer be appropriate to be taking orders over the phone. Mm-hmm. But in some ways, the internet is a big inconvenience <laughs> for, <laughs> for others. You know, it, it's not something they see as a disruptive force for change and, and creating a ton of value. And we do. We're a technology company that happens to be focused on live entertainment because we think it's a huge vertical with a ton of opportunity. But we ultimately see the world through the lens of how can we use software to make this industry better. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, the technology is proprietary to, to seek it. You, you develop it yourselves. Yeah, absolutely. Um, can you talk about, um, you say you're vertically integrated, right? So you, you, you know, from start to finish, um, can you, can you talk a little bit about what you mean there by, by the vertical integration, how you think about that part? Vertical integration is a key 
thing that differentiates SeatGeek and makes us unique and ultimately enables us to deliver the best user experience in the industry. By that, I mean, when you look across the, the ticketing landscape, there's certain companies that are focused on being a secondary market, uh, you know, resale. There are others that are focused on- I guess a StubHub. Would be, that would be an example, perhaps. Uh, there are others that are focused on the primary market, which is working with teams and enterprises, venues, issuing tickets. We do both and everything in between, and we do that in a modern internet-centered way. That ultimately just enables us to create a much better user experience than, as an example, a company that was built on top of the value chain of another company, mm -hmm. particularly when those two companies aren't cooperating. Mm -hmm. So we found that by being fully vertically integrated, by controlling the whole technology stack, we can deliver much better user experiences, and we can also capture much better economics for both us and for our clients. Mm -hmm. um, and so you started off as a as a secondary only, and you, you sort of shifted to to get some of these enterprise clients, so to speak, a few years ago. Is that correct? Yeah. And in late 2016, we launched our enterprise business, which was a major expansion of scope for us. It was something we've been working towards for a very long time. We think that the legacy ticketing companies that have historically dominated the primary market have not had real competition in a very long time. And innovation is stagnant to non-existent. Um, their clients are not happy. And it's a, it's a landscape that's completely ripe for disruption. Mm -hmm. um, and, and can you give a, a bit of an overview of, of what it means when, when you sign up an enterprise or, or primary client um, and, and how you think about you know, striking those deals? Are they exclusive deals? How long are they? And, and how do you see that you know, working in um, you know, to the growth of the business there? We work with teams on an exclusive basis. And actually, I should say we work with venues on an exclusive basis because it's not just the team's events that we're ticketing. It's everything that goes through that venue for the most part. So as an example, we were recently thrilled to sign the Barclays Center in Brooklyn Sports mm -hmm. and Entertainment. We ticket now all Nets games. We also ticket all other events that go through the Barclays Center which is a majority of the events there are actually not Nets games. There are other yeah. things. Yeah. <laughs> Deal link uh, in our industry typically lasts five years, sometimes longer. Sometimes you'll see seven, sometimes you'll see 10. But they're really, you know, we are delivering the software that in many ways serves as the operating system for a venue and for a team. It's what their sales force is, is in every day, their box office. It's uh, key reporting software. So it's very important to any venue that they have the best software on earth to run their business. And mm -hmm. we deliver that. Uh, and what are the economics of, of, of the primary deals look like? I imagine, you know, there's a cost associated with it. So, um, you know, how long you know, does it take to, to sort of reap the economic benefits of that? Um, you know, and some on the bear side would say, you know, the enterprise business is less profitable than you know, just going after secondary. So curious as, as to your thoughts on that, on that piece. Yeah. Our deals typically, pay back in one to two years. Mm -hmm. And after that, it's they're, they're profitable and they reach a terminal margin pretty quickly. There's no question that the our enterprise business is a longer term game than secondary insofar as it doesn't pay back as quickly. But ultimately, it is a far more profitable and also has, it gives us an incredible moat that does not necessarily exist for secondary only players. We've been talking a lot about primary and, and secondary, but we actually often think about the industry as being consumer and enterprise. 
It's a mm-hmm. bunch of places people shop. It's a bunch of uh, pieces of software that teams use. Con- to control both of those gives us incredible power and stickiness to ultimately you know, use technology to make the experience better. And there's a lot of stickiness in that these are long-term contracts. And if we do our job and we create software that is far and away the best for a team or a venue to run their business, they're not going anywhere. And that gives us a really long-term moat and a surface area on top of which to innovate. Right. And so, you know, by, by signing up those clients, um, it just brings more people to the platform and kind of generates that flywheel, if you will. You're, you're in this. Yeah. It's a very effective form of user acquisition. Mm-hmm. Compare it to something like search engine marketing, which is generally everyone's bidding up to an efficient frontier and you're trying to scrape out pennies where you can. Mm-hmm. And we do that, but we think that we have a much bigger differentiated advantage when it comes to signing enterprise deals as a way to acquire consumer users. Mm-hmm. We've found that the lifetime value as a fraction of cost of acquisition is around two to three times better when we acquire users via the enterprise business. Right. And what kind of, um, what are the prospects there? Are there, you know, teams and venues that don't have deals with existing companies or is it a, um, you know, a, a strategy where you're trying to, you know, switch, you know, switch teams and, and venues over to you versus, versus a competitor. Any venue that's already live and, and processing events will have some software they're using. Yeah. So we are either switching from another provider or in some cases when there's a new venue, Mm-hmm. We are starting from scratch. Right. Um, and so that brings me to competition, right? And so at least as a, as, as a user of, of some of these, you know, apps and sites, you know, how, 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 how does one think about, you know, SeatGeek versus the Ticketmasters, the, the Vivids, the, the StubHubs of the world? We've been talking a lot about vertical integration and <laughs> that it's a key part of what allows us to create just a much better user experience. When you look at our net promoter score, which is a measure of user happiness, compared to our competitors, there's a very wide gap. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that is, is because we are ultimately able to deliver a super seamless, elegant experience. You know, this is an industry that people historically feel like they're always getting ripped off. Even if they haven't, they feel like they got ripped off when they buy a ticket and they feel like they don't know what they're buying. And it's hard, right? It's, it's not like, uh, I don't know, if you're buying an iPhone, pretty clear what the price of a given iPhone is, right? Yeah. You don't have a lot of <laughs> science to figure that out. When you buy a ticket, there's, you know, at a given NFL stadium, there might be 80,000 seats and each one is actually unique. And valuing each of those is a different process that no human brain should be doing. Mm-hmm. We do that for folks. We get them the broadest swath of inventory possible so that we're not just helping people figure out what's a good deal and what's a bad deal, but we're doing that among the largest amount of options so that people ultimately leave knowing that they got a great deal. The ticket gets delivered instantly to their phone and they can get into the game, get into the show and uh, have a great time. Right. Uh, and no, no one likes to get ripped off on tickets, but, but you're <laughs> right there. That is, you, you always, you always feel it for some reason. <laughs> and then, and then when you want to sell your tickets, you, you, you feel like you're never, get, you're not ever on that side of ripping other people off. Right? <laughs> exactly. And now a word from our sponsor, Boardroom Alpha. Boardroom Alpha's SPAC intelligent platform tracks every SPAC vehicle from pre-IPO all the way through to their DSPAC merger. It is a one-stop shop data platform tracking each constituent across the entire SPAC lifecycle. Know the team and the sponsor behind each SPAC with full SPAC history, person and sponsor historical performance, as well as deal info. Track the market. We deliver daily aggregate discount premiums of SPACs, total issuance, trends and returns, biggest daily movers, and upcoming SPAC calendar. 
Get immediate and real-time access to investor materials, institutional holders, structures, redemptions, filings, and more. To learn more or register for a free trial, please visit www.boardroomalpha.com slash spec. Uh, so I want to focus a little bit on, on the growth. Um, I think you're projecting, looks like from your investor deck, 345 million revenue for 22. That, that, that ramps up to over a billion in 25. Um, mm-hmm. what are, where do you see the, uh, the biggest areas for growth? Is it new markets, new products, um, just in the, you know, an explosion in live entertainment after everyone was home for a year and a half? Yeah. Uh, how, how are you thinking about that? The last thing you mentioned is not to be understated. There's a a huge amount of pent up supply and demand. And I think next year is going to be a bonanza year for live entertainment. With that said, that's something that 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 is a rising tide that will lift all ships. And we've been fortunate to be a ship that has been rising much faster than the rest anyway. Meaning prior to COVID, we were growing at around 65% annually on a compounded basis. We've further increased our market share and, and the growth therein during COVID. So there's a few things that have been driving that. One has been what we've been talking about, which is the process of signing enterprise clients and the huge amount of user growth that happens as a result. A lot of that is actually not just at the client itself. It might be, you know, use the Nets as an example earlier. It might be a, a Nets fan who found out about Seek through a partnership with the Nets, but then wanted to go see a concert at a small venue in New York and use Seek to get a ticket for that um, because they already had their app on the, uh, our app on their their phone. So that's one thing that's driving a lot of growth. We've also really increasingly are investing in our brand. We still mm-hmm. have low, relatively low brand awareness, around 10%. We had a major rebrand earlier this year, which was uh, a lot of fun. And now we're we're you know one of the plans for the proceeds from the SPAC transaction is to really invest in that brand, brand awareness, and making Seeky nationally recognized as the best place to go buy tickets, experience events, and everything in between. How do you, um, how are your customers split between um, like using mobile or, or desktop? Is it, is it primarily through the phone or, or, or is it a mix of some sort? I'm sure yeah, we've always been very mobile centric. We, we certainly offer both and make sure that we have the best experience possible on every platform. But we were very early in the app store. We launched our first iOS app back when it actually felt like a risky decision. Now right. it seems like a plainly <laughs> obvious thing to do. But back then, no one was spending money on, on phones. And it actually would, took a little bit of uh, courage to spend a lot of uh, resources on an iOS app. So yeah, we're, we're very mobile centric. And it's also reflected in our user base. We have a really disproportionate number of younger Gen Z users on SeekGeek compared to competitors. Stating the obvious that, that demo tends to skew more mobile. Uh, yeah, I remember those days. A little nerve-wracking to, you know, spend a few hundred bucks on a on a ticket on your phone. Um, yeah, initially people weren't really doing it. We right. remember we had an intense debate about whether or not we should even build a mobile app. Which, again, if you're doing a startup today, it would be a <laughs> no one could have that discussion. It's so obvious, but uh, it's like table uh, stakes, right? Exactly. <laughs> um, so we we touched a little bit on on, on COVID. Um, you know, must have been a harrowing few months for 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 someone focused in the in the live event space. And there was a time where, you know, you had you had, you had folks on TV saying, "Are we ever going to go back to live events?" <laughs> I'm happy we have. Um, you know, I was one of the first to to get back out there, even though it was like five percent right. capacity at a game. <laughs> um, but can you talk about how you weathered the COVID storm? 
um, and in sort of what that's felt like to, to almost see it full circle now where, um, you know, live entertainment's, you know, back in, back in humming. We made a bit of a different path than some other companies. So many in our industry really went into hibernation mode. Mm-hmm. We didn't. And this is another thing that was a little scary at the time, but we did a small uh, headcount cut, didn't cut much there. We did cut marketing and other discretionary spending. But we also pretty quickly raised a round of financing and really started building and growing again and hiring and investing in the the technology all with an eye towards capturing market share on the other side of COVID. Mm -hmm. And we've been fortunate to actually see that play out. We're leaving COVID, hopefully leaving COVID. (laughs) I shouldn't say leaving COVID. We're in post-vaccine COVID with uh, at least 50 to 60% market share growth which is, I believe, a direct consequence of the decision we made in the middle of the pandemic to invest in the product and invest in the team. Right, right. Um, I'd say you, you mentioned you raised funding during during the height of the pandemic. So it's a, a pretty quick ramp now to, to hear going public. And so can you talk about thoughts on, on, on the SPAC route, which is the obvious question? Um, you know, why public, why now? Um, you know, and why SPAC? Something we've been building towards for a while. COVID put a <laughs> delayed the timeline a little we'll bit. That one. <laughs> but there's also the, the flip side of that is that it's a hopefully once in a lifetime moment post pandemic. So I mean, we don't have another major pandemic in our lives where there's a lot of dislocation in the industry and there's a lot of market share up for grabs. We're ultimately able to accomplish now in one year what might have taken three or four in a sort of stable market. And I think because of that, being really well capitalized as a public company makes even more sense because we're able to ultimately take advantage. Mm-hmm. That was what pushed us towards the SPAC route versus IPO is real confidence that we could have better control on amount of capital, on deal terms, and on timeline so that we didn't miss that window. And then we were looking at potential partners, Redbird, who we're working with was truly at the top of the list. They had a spreadsheet. They were number one. <laughs> and it was because they have just a huge, huge amount of uh, track record when it comes to investing in and also building sports and entertainment companies. Um, right, right. Um, you, know, it, and, you know, the media likes to call it the money ball spec because you got you know, <laughs> really being on, on, on the red on the red, red ball. I get, get confused when I say that a lot. Red ball from Red Bird Capital. Um, so uh, use of proceeds, you mentioned, you know, a bit about expanding, um, you know, marketing, um, sort of, A, what does that look like? And, and B, what, what else do you plan to, to do with the cash raised here? Yeah. So talked a bit about marketing already. We're constantly investing in technology and our software. We spend a disproportionate amount of operating expense on R&D, meaning product and engineering compared to other companies in our space. And we're going to keep doing that. We also are going to be expanding internationally. We currently have a our enterprise business in the UK and other parts of Europe, but it is white labeled at the moment, meaning half of the half of the English Premier League is powered by SeatGeek. But as a buyer, you don't know that you're buying from SeatGeek. It's it's a white labeled website. So we're we're Looking forward to using that as a launching off pad to launching the Seeky consumer brand in the UK uh, and elsewhere abroad. And we're also focusing on doubling down on, on signing clients and mm-hmm. further accelerating that because like we were talking about earlier, it's been a huge contributor to our growth. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and in, in 
congruence with your your Gen G Gen Z strategy rather. Uh, I see you mentioned your influencer marketing strategy, um, which I don't think many of your competitors kind of go hard in that realm. Can you talk about uh, strategy there and sort of how you think that you know helps uh, helps create growth? You know, for for Gen Z. We're talking earlier about how search engine marketing is a staple of ticketing in many other industries, but mm-hmm. it's really efficient market where it's difficult to get outsized gains. Gains usually scratching out a penny here or there. Mm-hmm. Influencer is another category that's newer, it's less well understood. And as a result, there's the opportunity to make it work really, really well. We've focused on it for many years. It's, it's generally us sponsoring, it's, fundamentally it's sponsoring creators online. Those folks could be on YouTube, they could be on Instagram, they could be creating a podcast like yourself. And what's cool about that is it gives you the opportunity to, to focus on, you know, on influencers that actually jive with our brand and what we're trying to create. And that's a bilateral thing. It's not just, you know, us, us being into what they're doing. It's also them being into what's, what SeatGeek is, which allows you to really tailor the message to an audience that makes sense for your company. So in our case, that's generally, you know, Gen Z users who really care about experiences. And it's a very natural thing because we can sponsor a creator who's going to a world series game and they can vlog about that experience. We can sponsor it. It all, you know, kind of wraps up really nicely and feels really authentic. And it's, it's fortunately worked really well for us. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and then I also wanted to to hear a little bit about you mentioned um, live experiences. You're you're ramping up live experiences. What what do those look like? If I if I you know buy, buy a ticket to to a Cowboys game, um, what 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 sort of live uh, additions or, or or et cetera go on go on there? One product that we we shipped during COVID called Rally, mm-hmm. which is all about the in venue experience. When we are ticketing an enterprise client, we're in this rare position where nearly everyone in the venue has downloaded the CQ app. We have identity of everyone. We have everyone's payment information stored, at least many, many fans' payment information stored. It puts us in a position to make the experience of you know, buying beer or of uh, ordering merchandise in that venue really easy and really seamless because of everything I was just describing. So Rally ultimately facilitates that. It's, mm-hmm. it's in-venue commerce and information to allow people to not just buy tickets and get in with SeatGeek, but also use SeatGeek throughout the event. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess a couple more on 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 the future. So it just it seems like you know there's there's a, a ton of competition in the ticketing industry, right? How how do you view the competitive landscape going forward? Do you think um, you know it's an industry ripe for M and A? Are you looking to make an acquisition? Could could yourselves potentially be an acquisition target in the future? We're ultimately, you know, we like I mentioned earlier, we were growing far and away the highest rate of all the scaled companies in our space coming into COVID. We're going to come out of COVID in, in the same position, we believe. And ultimately, that means that the underlying strategy is working. The mm-hmm. vertical integration that we've been talking about is really powerful and drives a lot of growth. And it's really just in the early innings of, of the power of that. Because we're gonna, if we do our jobs over the, the coming years, we're going to find more and more ways to make that valuable for clients and fans. So ultimately, you know, we think about M and A. It's does it add to that? And there are certainly potential opportunities where it does. But it's also something that is is very much you know I, I love what we've built, and I think it has the power to disrupt this industry um, at you know on its own right. And thus, combining with other companies is is really 
something we'd only consider if we thought it further added to that. <laughs> um, and and investors, right? So um, any uh, existing investors were they participants in the pipe here? Um, and and how do you view your your long term shareholder base? We did a hundred million dollar pipe alongside this back, which is five hundred seventy five million. And yeah, it was it was mostly insiders. We uh, were delighted to have Excel, who's one of our largest private investors, as an investor in the pipe, among others. Mm-hmm. Um, and I read fifty percent of of the sponsor promote is deferred based on performance. Is that correct? Yeah, there's a there's a burnout uh, for for both the sponsor and existing shareholders. Cool. Um, and uh, a, a, a second on valuation, um, you know, relative to peers, it looks like. Three three point nine times twenty two revenue. How, how, how did you come? How did you land on that valuation? And how how should I think about that uh, relative to to some of the competition out there? There's obviously both art and science to this. So it's <laughs> a little bit of us, you know, ultimately wanting to have a really strong start as a public company and right. knowing that to help ensure that we didn't want to be. We, we you know, obviously I think SeaKick is worth far more than. Uh, than the price we're going out at, but thought it was important just to introduce ourselves well to the market at a um, at a relatively low multiple mm-hmm. to give us a ton of upside. Um, you know, after we are uh, fully closed with the transaction and uh, listed, right? Yeah, life of as a, as a public company uh, a bit different than you know operating <laughs> in the shadows of a, in, in the private world. Um, that, that's great. Yeah, so I guess just to, to wrap up the. You know, what's the one minute elevator pitch if I'm, you know, looking to 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 get access to to the ticketing industry and you know why why should I buy a you know a SeatGeek share versus versus a Vivid or a, or a Live Nation or or a StubHub? Ticketing is an industry that, unlike other things like you know, rideshare that have been completely disrupted by technology, the value chain has not been. I think that's because there's entrenched monopolists that have really just taken offline experiences and only nominally moved them online. We're, we're, we are changing that. We are recreating the value chain. We are doing that via vertical integration by having control over the entire experience and being able to reshape it. And that's it's important because it creates a lot of economic value. It's important also because it gets a lot more people to events mm-hmm. and allows artists, promoters, teams to put on more events that ultimately grows the industry in the process. Great. Love it. Uh, so is, is Baker Mayfield the, the front <laughs> back to the future? Oh man, that's the hardest question you've asked me. I love <laughs> Baker. Uh, I think personality-wise, he's super charismatic. Yeah. Um, on on field has been a little rougher of late. <laughs> so who's gonna win in, in two weeks? And I'm not feeling too good about the Browns right now. <laughs> but I think we might take the Raiders. <laughs> uh, love that. So who knows? We're, we're, we, we've got our own issues um, on and off the field. So uh, we'll be a, we'll be a fun game. Jack, thanks thanks a lot again for for taking the time here. Um, congratulations on the deal, and you know excited to to, to see to see it progress. Thanks, David. Appreciate you having me. 